0: Welcome
1: to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person who uh, wants to change the world and would love to see a more peaceful world. I think we all would love to see a more peaceful uh, world. Um, The guest today is someone whose name is very, very familiar to Minnesotans. Uh, The name is Pillsbury. Uh, Welcome to Food Freedom Radio, uh, Charlie Pillsbury.
0: Well, thank you, Laura. A pleasure to be here yes,
1: talking to another Minnesotan. Another Minnesotan. So, yeah, tell us tell us a little bit about your background.
0: Uh, well, sure. I, as I, I uh, tell people that when people ask me what's my ethnic group, I usually say Minnesotan because uh, uh, my great-grandfathers uh, uh, migrated west and settled in Minnesota before Minnesota was a state on both my father's and my mother's side of the family. So, not just the Pillsbury side, but also, uh, on my mother's side.
1: And so in, in the 1880s, Pillsbury had five mills on the bank and, uh, it was like one of the largest milling places in the world.
0: Yeah, but the interesting thing about the milling business is that it's, uh, uh, it's very cyclical. And, uh, you know, my father, God bless him, uh, with the help of Laurie Sturden, wrote a book about the Pillsbury's of Minnesota. And I learned, uh, from reading this book, uh, that uh had Pillsbury not also owned uh I think it was about a, a twenty or twenty five percent of the power company you know because they were using that power to to turn the mills in those days, they would not have survived because you know when the wheat harvest is bad there was no flour mill you know so uh, uh it was a cyclical business, and I think that the only reason Pillsbury survived into the twentieth century was the uh, fact that they also own part of uh, the utility company
1: and yeah tell us a little bit more about the role um I haven't read Lori's uh book but I did hear about it the role of Pillsbury's in Minnesota uh
0: well I think you should have to read the book it's a it's a, a long history uh uh you know one of my uh, uh well my great grandfather who also named Charles a uh, is was a He's as the one who actually starts the Pillsbury, the I think it's actually initially called the Charles A. Pillsbury Flower Company in eighteen sixty nine. And uh he does that with the help of his uncle uh and his father, um, who then is still in uh New Hampshire where the my branch of the Pillsbury family comes. Uh and his uncle, you know, John Pillsbury, who later became I think, the third governor of the state uh, was then had a dry goods business, uh, in, uh, uh, what was then St. Anthony Falls, I like think before it became Minneapolis. And, uh, uh, and so with the help of capital from his dad and his uncle, uh, uh, they started. But as I mentioned, uh, you know, what's, what's amazing about it, his, my great great grandfather, Charles's father, who was part of the, uh, financing of this company, is that, uh, uh, he ends up being mayor. Of uh, both Concord, New Hampshire And then later when he migrates west To join his son and brother uh, He ends up being elected mayor of Minneapolis uh, When Minneapolis is the first first city So there's a role there And then of course uh, 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 My great-grandfather's uncle, uh, John um, you know, Not only was the third governor of the state But he also, I think, got elected Because he saved the University of Minnesota From bankruptcy And we're oh. not for... Uh, uh, you know, because, uh, the University of Minnesota at the time in the 19th century had, uh, no money, but a lot of land, uh, you know, because of the, uh, uh, well, because we were giving away indigenous lands to, uh, uh, to, uh, um, you know, and, uh, he ended up, uh, selling a lot of that land to finance some bonds that, uh, the university had and and kept it from going bankrupt. Uh, so now there's a statue of him on the university campus. I think somewhere near the English department. But uh, you know, so it's it's a. You know, I'm proud of my family, uh, um, but I'm also uh, uh, I found it growing up with a brand name hard to live under the family tree. Not enough sunshine. So that's why I'm here in Connecticut. So, uh, but my son's back there. So God bless him. Uh, my son Andrew back in the Twin Cities, and he now lives in Orno. One half mile away from where I went to elementary school in Long Lake, so uh,
1: yeah, so uh, fourth generation you went to Blake, you went to Yale, and you also had an interesting roommate Gary Trudeau, and you're a character from doomsbury <laughs> <laughs> yes,
0: that is true uh that will uh, that got me into the preppy handbook it got me into Wikipedia it get me into my <laughs> obituary but, but uh, uh no G- Gary, uh dear friend, we still actually uh continue to communicate. We have these roomy calls on Saturday nights, uh, but Gary, uh, you know, a very, one of the most observant, uh, uh guys, very soft spoken, very smart. I uh, started a, uh, comic strip in the Yale daily news. Uh, uh, and, uh, then it was just called bull Tales, Um, and, uh, and it featured four, you know, stereotypical characters. Uh, it featured a, uh, a jock, a B D, it featured a radical Mark uh, megaphone Mark, Mark Slackmeyer, it featured a hippie, Zonker, uh and then there was the straight guy, the Charlie Brandle strip. That was me, uh, because I was my nickname in college was the Dune. So Dune buried Dunesbury. And uh Carrie told me that basically it was a choice when they when he when syndicated the strip between calling the strip Zonker and calling it Doonesbury, and he ended up going with Doonesbury. So there you have it. Uh, uh, so you so, know,
1: yeah. Uh, so it's kind of fun. So that that is that is a, that's quite an eclectic background. And then, um, but you were involved in something called the Honeywell Project. Tell us about that. Fifty years um, ago almost.
0: Sure. Well, uh, between my junior and senior year at at Yale. Um, I work in, in, in a, an American Friends Service Committee project in Northeast Minneapolis. Uh, the idea, you know, this is shortly after the Kerner Commission. The idea was to work with uh, people of faith in Northeast Minneapolis and people of faith across the river in North Minneapolis and try to bridge that, you know, the racial gap that's still with us, you know, what, uh, you know, 50 plus years later. Um, uh, but, of course, the church that invited the Quakers into northeast Minneapolis uh shut down for the summer, so there we were uh and I ended up uh uh volunteering at that point for the Minneapolis Tennis Union and for the Twin Cities Chapter Information Center and I then discovered um, this organization called the Honeywell Project that met in the basement of the Grace Lutheran Church on the University of minnesota campus and uh And this was started by a chaplain from McAllister who had been to North Vietnam, came back with a cluster bomb uh, that was made in Minneapolis, actually made in St. Louis Park, uh, by Honeywell. And uh, I was shocked, you know, as as were many people, uh, 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 because Honeywell was, you know, had a great uh, brand name and made thermostats and made cameras, but in that in a Sleek white building uh off of uh what was then route twelve I think even before three ninety four you know um, uh, there was a factory in st louis park that that was the largest manufacturing center of uh anti personnel fragmentation bombs, and so I got involved in the Honeywell project uh, um, uh that project then got discredited by uh, by the Really, I, I believe the agent provocateurs the, the people, the FBI and the police hired to up this, you know, up kind of interfere with our peaceful protests. I mean, we were trying to peacefully protest Honeywell's manufacturer and instead uh, a bunch of guys with uh, jeans and no shirts and, and pipes, you know, smashed the door of the Honeywell. And uh, so uh, that was, I think, to some extent, the end of the effectiveness of that project for and so we continued it through this, this, uh, nonprofit called the Council for Corporate Review. And we bought a share of stock in all the defense companies in the Twin Cities, not to single out Honeywell, but also control data at the time, uh, uh FMC Corp, uh, 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 based in San Jose. I think there was a, uh, a Donovan's, a family held company called Donovan that manufactured munitions for the army. Uh, and we bought the share and went to shareholders meetings and, uh, um, and, uh, you know, we didn't have immediate success. but I will say that about a decade later, um, long after the council closed its doors and the project faded away, Honeywell uh, agreed with us that war was not good business, and they divested themselves of all their defense contracts. They spun them off. Uh, so uh, um, and we celebrate, you know, the fact that we told you so. You War is bad business, you know. You want to invest in peace, not war. And uh, I guess, uh, you know, that you know maybe is a segue. But anyway, you you no, asked the question. Yeah, the no, story. no, no. That,
1: that, I mean, that but but so war isn't. So this was Honeywell was making bombs for Vietnam, and as um, a member of a prominent family, you were active to um, to try to um, bring out that war is not really a good business model for humans. <laughs>
0: No there was a uh, 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 Seymour Melman uh, who' is a professor from Columbia. We had him come and testify uh, before the Minnesota legislature he talked about economic conversion. I mean you know when you build uh you know i don't know spend millions of dollars billions of dollars you know making a missile or a, or you know, or a bomb uh you know You don't create many jobs, you don't help many people, but if you took that same amount of money, the millions and the billions, and you put it into building hospitals and building schools and paying teachers and paying, you know, our first respond, you know, nurses and doctors, you know, that's the way you provide jobs and you help people. So, you know, war is bad for business and has always been bad for business, except for those who happen to own these companies that benefit from uh, selling arms. Uh, uh, So... Uh, but it doesn't benefit the rest of us. It uh, doesn't. It so,
1: Charles Pillsbury, um, we're going to take a break, and we're going to come back. We're going to talk about an editorial you wrote in the Star Tribune um, as uh, asking to boycott um, uh, General Mills, um, which, of course, now owns uh, Pillsbury. And we'll come back, we'll hear about your editorial. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. So I'm ready to jump right in. have some prudent behavior come out and play. So you're listening to uh, Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Headline, and joining us is Charles Pillsbury. Um, He is a descendant of um, the Pillsbury, um, Charles A. Pillsbury, who founded the Pillsbury Company over 150 years ago. And, uh, Charles, tell us about the editorial you wrote in, uh, um, you you and your siblings wrote in the uh, Stern Tribune.
0: Well, first of all, Laura, you can call me Charlie. But, uh, uh, no, the editorial... uh, um, the background is that uh, I'm a member of the United Church of Christ, uh very active member uh, of uh, UCC Church in New Haven. Uh, my wife is an ordained UCC minister, and uh, uh, we attend uh, these uh, national synods, synods that happen every two years, kind of the, the, the annual meeting, you might say, of the entire the church. Uh, and in 2015, uh, the United Church of Christ uh, passed a... Uh, a resolution uh, asking for United Church entities, local churches, cemeteries, uh, you know, seminaries, um, uh, members of uh, UCC churches, to uh, boycott and divest from companies that were doing business in the occupied territories, uh, because we were responding to really our brothers and sisters, our Palestinian Christians uh, from Bethlehem. Elsewhere, uh, uh, who were saying, you know, we, we need your support. And, uh, uh, one way you can help us is by f- focusing on, uh, these companies that are doing business, uh, uh, in the occupied territories, in the settlements. And, um, so, uh, you know, that seems like a, a no-brainer, but it was in that process that, that I discovered that the UN had a list of over a hundred companies. I I was familiar with Caterpillar, with, with Hewlett Packard. Uh, um, um, there were a number of other companies that were doing business. But when I discovered that General Mills was on that list, I was uh, stunned. Uh, uh, you know, but, you know, there are many things going on that, uh, you know, that's just f- with me. Um, and then uh I was contacted, uh, um, I'd say about six, eight weeks ago now by the American Friends Service Committee. You recall the organization I worked for, uh, that summer in 1969 in Minneapolis, uh, and, uh, they have a campaign, uh, that's boycotting companies and particularly boycotting, uh um, General Mills for, uh, the fact that General Mills, uh, has a factory, I think it leases this factory, uh, it's, on occupied lands in East Jerusalem, uh, that in East Jerusalem, you have to remember, is the, is traditionally the, the, the Arab sector of Jerusalem. It's in fact what the Palestinians, uh, consider the capital. They, you know, if in a two-state solution, East Jerusalem would be their capital, the rest of Jerusalem would be Israel's capital. And, uh, but slowly, uh, the Zionist state of Israel, uh, has, has taken, has made, settlements in the, in, the, in the West Bank and it has taken over uh, factories and, and homes. A lot of people are probably familiar with the, what was going on in Sheikh Jarrah. Uh, that's another story. Anyway, that's when I I really dis- discovered then what's going on uh, with the help of these folks from the, the American Friends Service Committee that um, what's going on is that uh, General Mills has a factory in this occupied ter- territory and where it's making refrigerated dough products, um, uh, you know the kind of cinnamon rolls, croissants, uh, you know the kind we all like to eat. Uh, uh, and my father once told me that this was a a, you know, a real cash cow for the Pillsbury Company. So um, one of the reasons that First Grand Metropolitan and then and then General Mills acquired Pillsbury was because of the technology that Pillsbury had to make refrigerated dough products, because they were. So popular, we were kind of a cash cow, you know, great profit margin. And, uh, what was happening in this East Jerusalem factory on occupied territory was, uh, they were making kosher, uh, refrigerated dough products. And, uh, and they were doing that with a workforce that was half Jewish, half Palestinian. Uh, but if you're a Palestinian working in a factory in an occupied territory, you are, first of all, searched when you go in, when you go out, uh, the armed guards while you're working there and you get paid half as much as you would, if you've worked in Israel. So it's uh, not only, uh, you know, uh, uh, an injustice to the, you know, to the the people who once occupied East Jerusalem, but it's also, uh, you know, it's it's a sweatshop. So anyways, uh, the more I learned, uh, I just, I I couldn't not do something. So uh, they said, why don't you read, write an op-ed, Page and uh, I said, "Well, you know, give me a few points, and then I'll wrap it in my own words." And uh, and then, of course, I give it to my wife, who's, uh, uh, and you know, like I said, the UCC pastor, Ali Perry is also, uh, in fact, chair of the uh, Palestinian-Israel Network of the United Church of Christ. Uh, And uh, again, because uh, we continue to hear cries from Palestinian Christians that, uh, so that's what led to the publishing of that uh, op-ed. I wasn't sure it would be published, but they did. They did. And, Charles,
1: we're down to our last two minutes, and there's a lot I want to get into because I want to make sure we mention at least what happened with Ben & Jerry's because Ben & Jerry's may not have existed as a company had you not taken the actions you did. Um, But now food is usually a place of peace. You know, if we often think of food as love through the, the, the table, do you think food can be that in this area? can we can we can we find a way to well, connect I,
0: I, I think that uh you know the you know sharing meals goes back centuries you know uh, millennia I mean that's how people always make peace they break bread together um and uh and, and they have ice cream together and they have you know croissant rolls together you know so uh, absolutely you know but um you know Right now, we're stuck in a you know vicious cycle. I mean, I condemn Hamas; they're as violent as the as the Israeli army is. It's like a and and what I what I think about is that this vicious cycle is 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 because uh, there was a wonderful Protestant theologian named Walter Wink, now deceased, who uh, coined the phrase "redemptive violence," and he claimed that. Now, this Christian theologian claimed that the, that the dominant theology, the dominant religion in the United States was not Christianity. It was redemptive violence. It was this belief that somehow violence would lead to something good, would actually fix a problem. You know, it would redeem. That's why it's called redemptive violence. But in fact, it just makes things worse again and again. And that's what's going on. Um, you know, you know, in the United States, it goes on in our cities. It goes on, uh, Every day it goes on, um, across the world. So, uh, I would say that's the world. you know, the, our, our faith in weapons rather than in bread, you know, uh, you know, turning swords into plowshares is, is, is everybody should be everybody's goal. And, uh, uh, and when you turn swords into players, plowshares, you have something to eat. So there we go. Back to our.
1: Well, I think I am going to hang on for one more second, if you have a few more minutes, um, because I love this idea of the ideologies. And a lot of times our ideologies as humans are almost like they're invisible. It's our intellectual architecture that we never, ever question. Like you need to have violence in order to have peace. Violence? Does violence ever lead to peace? Um, And you're listening to Food Freedom Radio. We're talking with Charles Pillsbury. Um, Ancestors go back um, deep into the history of Minnesota. In your eyes Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Headlin, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person who trusts that someday peace is possible, um, like all the John Lennon songs that I hear on the radio, Imagine, Imagine. Um, and our guest today is uh, Charles Pillsbury, uh, uh, Charlie Pillsbury. Um, and so when we went a break, we were talking a little bit about this idea of the ideology of redemptive violence. What did you mean by that?
0: Well, it just seems that uh, um, most people trust uh, their guns more than they trust their Bibles. You know, that's uh, you know, or their, or their, or the Torah, or you know, um, uh, you know, the Koran. I mean, it's people are in this world uh, all over the world, so it's not limited to Israel. It's not limited to the United States. It's all over the world so that you just see uh, that people seem to put more trust in weapons than they do in their holy and sacred texts uh and uh and and did you ever see jesus with a weapon Uh, i don't think so uh in fact he took he disarms peter and peter tries to cut off the ear of the high priest slave in the the garden so it's uh it's uh you know and so that's what i mean the fact is that uh uh and so what you have going on in our, I think, our cities, what you have going on, um, you know, really, another way to put it is that both the United States and Israel are settler colonial states. I mean, Israel is doing what to the Palestinians, what we did to the Native Americans, and we did it violently. I mean, I have another ancestor, uh, Samuel Sturgis, who was uh, my great-great-grandfather on my uh, uh, grandmother's side. Uh, uh, the name is Sturgis, South Dakota, is named after him. You know, he spent 20 years of his life after he graduated from West Point, killing Indians and driving them off their lands. I mean, so you know, it's a. We were a violent country at birth, and we remain a violent country. Israel was a violent country at birth, and it remains a violent country. Most countries seem to be, you know. And how do we break that cycle of violence? Uh, you know, that belief that violence, you know, redemptive violence. I mean, people believe that violence is going to actually do something. You know, and it's a little bit like that, that famous definition of insanity, which is doing the same thing over and over and over again, and gets us getting the same results. I mean, look at how many times Hamas and, uh, and Israel have gone at it. It's, it's crazy, and it's not over until somehow you break that vicious cycle and turn it into a, a virtuous uh, cycle, and that's that's a big challenge. Um, that but it's is, not impossible. It's been done.
1: You know, and that's, and I think that, you know, I know, like, um, uh, the author of the book, Better, Our Better Angels has documented that actually humans are becoming kinder over the years. Um, and sometimes it doesn't feel that way when you're, you know, when you're living with so much, but, but to actually, um, realize the benefits. I'm, I remember growing up and hearing this, oh, we're going to have this great peace dividend. And instead, we're still sort of so stuck in all these, um, ideologies of of violence and, and war, and how, how do we create something different?
0: Well, again, you know, I am, like I say, a uh, uh, you know a practicing Christian, and I just go back to those texts, and you know, and uh, I think as someone said, as uh, the great bumper sticker said it, I think when Jesus said love your neighbor, he didn't mean. Kill them.
1: <laughs> okay, and I know I want to, because this so, is a food show, and you so anyway, shared, so I usually. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so that, that's, you know, you know, it, it just, uh, so anyway, you asked the question. About, no, 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 that's cool. Take.
1: It's awesome. It's awesome. I, I love this. And I, But I also, um, so we we're talking to uh, Charlie Pillsbury, and I also wanted to, you shared me the story of Ben and Jerry's and your activism with that, and that is such a fun little tale. I want to make sure we get to mention it.
0: Well, it's, it's certainly food related, and it's also you know, a demonstration that this is not the first time I've I've called uh, out the Pillsbury Company when it's engaged in injustice, in and this happens uh, in the early '80s. And at that time, uh, Ben and Jerry's is just a Vermont local company, in Vermont, and they're trying to break into the Boston market. And at the time, Pillsbury uh, owns Haagen-Dazs, and Haagen-Dazs ice cream dominates the Boston market, and Pillsbury is using its uh, monopoly power to keep this little startup, Ben and Jerry's, out of the Boston market. And uh, and so a friend of mine comes back from Boston. She's picked up a flyer in Harvard Square, and it describes what's going on, and it says at the bottom, if you're upset by what Pillsbury is doing to Ben and Jerry's, write a letter to the Federal Trade Commission. So I said, hey, that's easy. I'm a lawyer. Uh, I can write a letter to the Federal Trade Commission. So I just wrote a simple one-page letter, and uh, I'm actually then get a call about three or four days later from my father, who got, heard, heard from the CEO of the company uh, – I uh, was upset. I said, well, you know, uh, Pillsbury's wrong on this. They're a good company, but they're just plain wrong. And uh, I, well, what's really gratifying is within, within two or three weeks of my letter to the FTC, uh, Pillsbury and haagen settled this matter and allowed Ben and Jerry's to compete with them in the Boston market. And that's the beginning of the growth of uh, Ben and Jerry's. Yeah, at that time some of you may recall that Jerry Greenfield came out and picketed the the Pillsbury headquarters, you know, a one person picket, you know, but uh, uh, I'd say that was, you know, around that was happening in the fall of of that year. And I think nothing of it, you know, it's done. And then at Christmas time, between Christmas and New Year's, this carton shows up at my law office and I'll say, geez, I didn't order anything. And then I open it up and I discover six pints of Ben and Jerry's ice cream. And I realized it with a big smile on my face, well, Ben and Jerry are just thanking me, I guess, for my letter. So, that uh, is, and uh, I've actually, I've actually talked to Ben. I don't know Jerry, but I've, I've talked to Ben, and he's thanked me personally. So, uh, yeah,
1: that, um, I mean, it, but. You know, one of the—I mean, these are kind of fun stories—but one thing that I've been deeply concerned about, and uh, I know actually Senator Amy Klobuchar and Senator Tina Smith are also working on this. And Tom Hartman has a book called "Oglarks." But this concentration, especially in the food business—you know, companies are just getting bigger and bigger. We have one meat company now doing twenty percent of the world's beef supply. So, do you—you've had sort of a front-row seat on some of that? What are your opinions?
0: Well. Um you know, I, I am not I would I'll leave that to the antitrust experts. I am uh I started out my life as a tax lawyer and then I became a, a community mediator. So I uh, I you know I you know, all I remember though, frankly, is that my father used to say that General Mills was just a, a smarter and better company than Pillsbury. They began to diversify out of the flour business much earlier. Remember I told you how cyclical that was and mm-hmm. and uh, and so you know I I give credit. I mean, that's why General Mills owns Pillsbury today and Pillsbury doesn't own General Mills because General Mills was just a better managed company. And so part of what's going on is that, you know, there is good management. Um, uh, part of it is going on is consolidation. I don't know who's making money, but somebody's making money. And, and I think as, as Amy Klobuchar realizes and others realize that, uh, you know, they may be making money, but a lot of people are losing out. And, uh, uh, and that's why I think you see people turning to, to, to Farmers markets and to local food stores, uh, to local, you know, uh, going to restaurants that, that, that offer local, uh, uh, you know, goods. I think people want good food. They don't want packaged food, uh, uh, <laughs> which is what I grew up on yeah. as a kid in Minnesota, you know, frozen peas and canned you know, peas and this and, you know, I never had fresh vegetables except for corn in the cob. That was the only fresh vegetable we ever had. Um, and that only happened once like in August, you know because at that point there was only the corn season was just uh, a month long, and then that was it. no more fresh vegetables until next August, so there you go,
1: yeah, that sounds great um so um so you have uh, you wrote this editorial in the stern Tribune um suggesting that people should boycott general mills. Why did you do that
0: well no I'm not talking about boycotting general mills, let's be clear uh, mm-hmm. i'm I'm just asking people to boycott Pillsbury products. I mean, uh, my daughter called me up and said, Dad, is it okay if I buy Cheerios? I said, of course, we're boycotting Cheerios. I grew up on Cheerios and Wheaties. Now, we're talking about, I also grew up on refrigerated dough products, but right now we're just talking about boycotting hillsbury product and particularly if you want to be specific the refrigerated dough products the kind of products are being made on occupied territory in east jerusalem so it's a very narrow and all general mills has to do is next time their lease comes up is to end that lease and just uh uh, you know start make manufacturing these kosher refrigerated products in israel proper or or somewhere else lebanon uh Jordan. They don't have to do it on occupied Palestinians' territory. So,
1: you've actually visited this area. What was your experience like there?
0: Um, Well, it was before there was a wall. I mean, I visited there in in 1997. It was right after Yitzhak Rabin was was assassinated by a Jewish terrorist. I mean, every time somebody speaks out for peace, uh, whether they're Jewish or not, they get killed. Um, by a, a Jewish or Zionist terrorist bad no, they're not they're Zionist terrorists uh, clarify that and and I was trying to go visit uh, I was at that point the head of a community media center and I wanted to go visit uh, this, uh, uh, this dispute resolution center in Bethlehem run by a man named Zubi Zubi uh, I think it was the Wiyam and but when I was there with my family we couldn't get to Bethlehem because there was a uh a protest at Rachel's tomb who couldn't get the road was closed, so we went to the Holocaust Museum, which was a very moving experience. Uh, um but uh I then also connected with a a, a Palestinian peace activist uh, at the time a few uh friends of mine in uh, in Amsterdam, uh former Minnesotans uh and uh, I went to visit uh uh, and I wanted to know what a Palestinian peace activist did, and he was actually selling books. He had a, had a mobile book library. And when I went to his office, I was struck that on the wall of his office, he had a picture of Gandhi and a picture of Arafat. I said, well, that's, that's unusual to have both. But, you know, here was a Palestinian committed to peace. There are Palestinians committed to peace. There are Israelis committed to peace. Uh, and, uh, so, you know, sometimes I think, we should just get the men out of the picture and let Israeli Israeli women and Palestinian women sit down and figure this out because women, you know, historically are the ones who are solving problems in families, you know. So And over uh, a wonderful that's meal. My, that's one of my solutions.
1: Yeah, and over a wonderful meal. Um well awesome. I thank you so much for your time. Um are you hopeful about the future?
0: You have to be. You have to be. Uh you know, you have to believe like uh you know Martin Luther King, although I don't think he was the first one to coin this phrase that the the arc of the universe bends towards justice I mean you know uh, that uh uh look you know it's taken us you know three hundred years to begin to really recognize our indigenous brothers and sisters and uh, uh and now we have a uh, you know the first interior secretary uh Deb Hollands, I think that's That's stunning. So it's taken us 300 years to make peace with her. And, you know, it's going to take a long time for the Israelis and Palestinians to sort this out. But it could done. You know, if if Esau and Jacob could could reconcile, anybody can reconcile. Read that text sometimes. Esau and Jacob. The reconciliation. It's an amazing story.
1: Beautiful. Well, I thank you so much for your time, and uh, it was wonderful to talk to you. Um, and we're going to be um, back with our last segment. Uh, you've been listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM nine fifty, the progressive voice of Minnesota. What looking for? know. you find it, please
0: won't you tell me Hey Jude, don't make it. Take a
1: sad song and make it better. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap. And, you know, someone who really pre- prefers uh, predictable spring weather. Yes, this is spring in Minnesota, and we have just had, what, 90s, 100 heat decks for how many days in a row, um and personally it makes me grouchy <laughs> and disoriented and a little crazy you know i um i love that uh, the lyric uh, take a sad song and make it better but you know what do you do when you're not feeling the greatest you know i i, I you know i don't want to say i'm under the weather or over the weather because maybe weather is not binary <laughs> But um, So for this last segment, I'm going to do a bit of a talking head um, segment and hopefully less of a talking head and more of a talking person. Um, Later in the segment, I do have tips on how to garden in hot weather, uh, climate change, so excited to hear about Keystone Pipeline, um, and then also some fun, innovative um, food um, information. If most noodles were made uh, from mushrooms instead of grain, how would that impact climate change? Um, but first, this question occurred to me. Um, if our relationships with, with plants were improved, uh, would we have improved relationships with each other? You know, at, at first, that seemed like even a crazy question for me. But um, this weekend is also the weekend for the International Herb Symposium. Um, and there's great information on that site. Here's their mission. We come together in honor of the plants and in the spirit of respect and reciprocity to share and learn from one another. By coming together in this way, we strive to create local and global communities dedicated to healing and caretaking from the earth and all beings. So you can get more information at that. It's there. Um, it's a virtual event, um, but there's so much cool information on that website. It's internationalherbsymposium.com. And that is not too crazy. I mean, and there's so much good evidence out there about plants and mental health and healing, forest bathing, um, having um, exposure outside, healing gardens, and hospitals. Um, but I'm not sure if my language is quite right here. But I think it's fair to say that being part of the plant world, it's non-binary. Yeah, I'm reading this wonderful book right now, Me, Myself, and They, Life Beyond the Binary by Luna Ferguson. Instead of two genders, male, female, um, some are now saying humans have 63 genders. One species of fungus has over 23,000 different Genders, The world is incredibly complex, right? And uh, so one benefit for me for interacting with plants is that it gets me out of what could be nicknamed the tribal binary code of the human operating system. OK, so here's an example. Um, there, This is from a former U.S. president. I just can't seem to remember his name right now. But he often put the world in binary terms. Friend, foe, right, wrong, winner, loser, male, female. And then they become incredibly emotionally charged. binary approaches to complex problems, climate change, racism, peace in the Middle East. These are so common and they are so freaking ineffective. The division is so tox- toxic. And it's really hard to free ourselves from this tribal binary code. A lot of this is just it's in the air and it's unconscious. Um and yet, that's why I think going out and being with plants can be so, um, Fun. So, either um, being with a plant, a dog, a cat, fish, um, you know, snake, whatever it is, it, it gets you outside of that um, binary frame. Um, I studied a little bit uh, Marshall Rosenberg. I don't know if people might be familiar. Check um, out him. Marshall rog- Rosenberg um, has wonderful videos out there on nonviolent communication. And some people are trying to, are looking at renaming that as empathetic communication. So, instead of just up, down, um, right, wrong, that we take some time to ground ourselves in what is and what makes us come alive. And one thing that has been coming to alive right now is it's been so incredibly hot this last week, right? I mean, it, it really has been tough. tough. Uh, the Minnesota State Horticulture Society did put out some stuff on what to do um, during a heat wave for your gardens. Water early and water deeply. So in the morning is the best time to get out and water those plants. Mulch can help. Um, don't worry about the blossom drops. Um, they, they, your plants are going to drop blossoms at this time. Um, but hopefully they'll, they'll come back. Um, adding some shade, um, some drop cloths may be good in some circumstances. Um, now your container plants, um, this hot weather can be really tough on them. And so the annuals, uh, you, you may have to water them twice a day. Um, and, uh, you know, this is this is what not to do. And the main thing not to do is not to fertilize them. So if you want more details about what you can do in your garden uh, with this heat, you can go to Minnesota State Horticulture Society. And another breaking news story that really had me excited this week um, was the Keystone Pipeline. I mean, it was finally canceled. And I... I Encourage people to tune into Native Roots Radio, their June 9th um, show. They were, live, or they were live when the news broke. And it just gave me so much hope. And I, I remember, you know, whatever, 10 years ago now, I mean, the Keystone Pipeline was a dead deal. And, and the problem is those tar sands. We know climate change is real. And we know people are going to make – they have these ideas that they can make a lot of money out of this tar sand it doesn't make any sense. We, uh, the livable planet is, 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 you know, water is life and, and, and life is more than money. And we need to find systems that work for people and for the future. And we can, we can. Um, and now there's some awesome information out on stopline3.org, stopline3.org. Um, line three, I'm going to read from the website. Line three isn't about safe transportation of a necessary product. It's about the expansion of a dying tar sands industry, Line Three would contribute more to climate change than Minnesota's entire economy. So keep on educating and organizing, and advocating to stop Line Three, and encourage people to really check out uh, Native Roots Radio. They have been—I'm just so proud that they've on AM 950. I love listening to them, and um, and it also makes me so hopeful. I mean, just it just it just. Makes me so hopeful. And another thing that made me incredibly hopeful, and I I got an email um, on somebody that's been able to make um, pasta, noodles from mushrooms. Now that – one of the things they sit on that is if instead of using the monoculture approach, and again, it's not just one solution now. It's not everything to be mushrooms, but mushrooms – so (sighs) mushrooms can be incredible – Helpers, um, for us to address the climate crisis. This is an article from Time Magazine. Why some mushrooms may be magic for climate change. There are more than five million separate species of fungi. The largest single organism on the planet is a fungus. It's a four square miles. Um, and some, um, some, uh, one's 8,000 years old. And fungus can absorb carbon. Um, a study found that soils dominated by certain fungus contains as much as seventy percent more carbon than soils dominated by other fungus. The study shows that trees and decomposers are really connected be, uh, via these um, fungi. Connect be, via this fungus. Um, you can actually, uh, you, and you need to know this stuff in order to be able to produ- predict future carbon cycling. Without thinking too much about how these two groups interact, we need to think about systems holistically and the humble. Fungus will not be forgotten. So imagine the power and the potential of making things like spaghetti and ravioli out of mushrooms. I mean, if that absorbs carbon, that could help us. And the one thing that this weather and this crisis we're facing is climate is important, water is life, and our future matters. So let's find ways that work for the future and work for the future for everyone. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota.